among the most fascinating and perhaps strangest customs in Judaism is the custom of kaparis. Or in Hebrew, or in um, Sephardic pronunciation, or modern Hebrew, kaparot. Ashkenazim know it as kaparis. Kaparis is an ancient custom that dates back over, well over a thousand years and has historically been done by just about every community, Jewish community around the world. And the custom in short is that on the morning before Yom Kippur, this year on Wednesday morning, each person takes a chicken and swings it around their head and says the words, Ze kaparati, this is my atonement. Ze murati, this is my exchange. Ze khalifati, this is my, uh, this is instead of me, this is my exchange. And then they bring the chicken to the shochet, the ritual slaughterer who then slaughters it. And then the chicken is given to the poor um, or given to charity. That is the historical custom of Kaparis. Now, I know a lot of people are very uncomfortable with Kaparis, and that is why I'm doing a class about it, and I intend to address that. But first, let me explain what it is and why we do it, and then I'll get to the discomfort that many people have with Kaparis. I think some people are even uncomfortable coming to a class about Kaparis. But I think it's important. I think it's important that we have the class regardless. So historically, when was it done? Kaparis was done on the morning before Yom Kippur. According to Kabbalah, the Kaparis should be done before sunrise, during what's called Ashmores Haboker, or the morning watch. In Jewish traditions, we are told that every night the angels sing praises to God. And there are three different groups of angels that praise God every night. There is the first group, the second group, and the third group. Or um, what's called the first watch, the middle watch, and the morning watch. And according to Kabbalah, the morning watching during the last third of the night is a time of God's kindness. It's a time of great kindness. Um, that's why we have a tradition to say slichot in the morning before sunrise during this time of kindness. So ideally, this time of God's kindness and mercy is the best time to recite the kaparos on the morning before Yom Kippur, before sunrise, during the last third of the night. However, there was a challenge historically, and there remains this challenge today, that for the shochet, for the ritual slaughterer, they can only slaughter... The last quarter, third of the night is only a four-hour period. There's only so many chickens that a shochet, a ritual slaughterer, can slaughter in four hours. If everybody's going to do kaparas, and there's only a limited number of shochim, then you can't have everyone do it within that time. And so therefore, um, rabbis over the years have suggested that it can be done any time before Yom Kippur, after Rosh Hashanah before Yom Kippur, there are seven days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, and it can be done during any of those seven days. So generally in most communities, Kaparis was done every day in the week leading up to Yom Kippur. Now how is it done? 
So they would take a white chicken. Uh, males take a rooster, a male chicken. Females take a hen, a female chicken. Each person takes their own chicken. If a woman is pregnant, then she should take also a chicken for her fetus. If she doesn't know the gender of her fetus, and before ultrasounds they had no way of knowing the gender of their fetus, then the Arizal writes, the great Kabbalist, that she should take a rooster and two hens, one hen for herself, and a rooster and hen to cover the fetus, not knowing if it is a male or a female. And then holding this chicken, we read seven verses from chapter 107 of Psalms. Chapter 107 of Psalms speaks about how people are in trouble, and then, Vayitzaku el Hashem, they cry out to God, Vayoshiem, God saves them. And it goes through in great detail, um, repeatedly, how people are in trouble, people are struggling, people are having it hard. Yoshvei Choshech Vetzamavet, sitting in the dark, sitting in, um, uh, sitting in, um, uh, sitting in extreme dark. Um, they are in prison and speak about how we're struggling. We turn to God, and God saves us. So we read these seven selected verses from chapter 107. We begin those verses with the words, B'nai Adam, sons of man. In other words, speaking to ourselves and really comparing ourselves to this chicken in front of us. That sons of man, when we are in trouble, we cry out to God, and God saves us. And then we thank God, Yodul Hashem Chasta, we thank God for His kindness, how Beniflotav and His wonders for Livnei Adam, for people, how God then saves us, and we thank him for saving us. We then read two verses from chapter 33 of Eov, of Job. Um, one verse that says, Im yesh alav malach melitz echad mini alef, if a person only needs one angel to advocate for them out of a thousand. We need one advocate for us. We're looking for an angel that can advocate for us before God. And then it says, God then gives the person grace or favor and takes him out of the depth, takes him out of his destruction and finds atonement for him. And so we read those verses from Job. And then we take the chicken and we gently swing it over our heads, saying the word, Zechalifati, this is my exchange, Zet Murati, this is my um, change, Zekaparati, this is my atonement. And then we conclude this chicken is going to die while I am going to go to a long, good life. And the custom is to repeat this entire thing, reading the nine verses and swing the chicken three times over our head to do that whole thing three times over. And then we take the chicken to the shochet, who slaughters it. And then the chicken is given to the poor. Now, there was a problem in many communities that everybody did kaparis. And thankfully, most communities only had a limited number of poor people. Each poor person ended up with dozens of chickens. What are you going to do without refrigeration, without the, a freezer? What are you going to do with dozens of chickens? So therefore, Rabbi said, better take it home, eat the chicken yourself, 
and give its value in cash to the poor. They'll get much greater value of that. So that's what people have always done, what's called pidyon kaparot, redeeming the kaparas, um, to um, give the money instead to the poor, and you can eat the chicken yourself. So that's the tradition of kaparas in short. This tradition of kaparas is not, it's a tradition or a custom, as opposed to a law. In Judaism, there are mitzvot commandments. We have 613 commandments from God. Then we have rules that were created by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council of Judaism. For the first 1,800 years or so of Jewish history, we had a Supreme Council, a Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin had the authority to make rules that were binding on all Jews. And we have many rules that were made by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council. Second day of the festival outside the land of Israel, the festivals of Purim and Hanukkah, washing our hands before we eat, reciting the Hallel, lighting candles before Shabbos. These are all what's called rabbinic law. Rabbinic law doesn't mean that rabbis made it up. Rabbis, modern rabbis, it means that the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, in the first 1800 years of Judaism, put, legislated these laws, and they were given the authority to make rules for us. So that is called, we call that rabbinic law, or in Hebrew, midirabbanah. Then there are customs and traditions that began usually at a later stage, some began earlier, but were never officially legislated as never instructed by God, not commandments, nor were they legislated by our Supreme Council, uh, but customs that developed over time. So Kaparas falls into that genre, that group of rules that were legislated over time. Uh, sorry, that were, were developed over time, customs that were developed over time, similar to the Tashlich that we do on Rosh Hashanah. They seem to may, maybe even have a similar origin, as we'll soon see. Um, and similarly, we have many other customs, many of the customs regarding Rosh Hashanah, of foods we eat, our own customs, again, that developed over time, but were never officially rules that were legislated. So the Kaparas also began over time. Um, it appears to have begun during what's called the Gaonic period. The Gaonic period is a period that goes from after the Talmud was written about 1,500 years ago until the demise of Babylonian, the great Babylonian yeshivas about the year 1,000 or about 1,000 years ago. So it's a period that goes from about the year 500 to about the year 1,000. So the Kaparis began during that period. That's when the tradition of, that's when the custom of Kaparas began. By the late Gaonic period, in other words, before, by the late 800s, 900s, it appears to have been extremely widespread. We have many Chivot Gaonim, many letters from the Gaonim, from the Jewish leaders from that period, discussing Kaparas. And so it appears to have been extremely widespread by the 800s, 900s. In other words, it was done in all, almost all Jewish communities. At first, like many traditions, it took time till there was a single way to do it. It started with many variations. Rav Shachna Gaon, one of our Gaonim from the 900s, mentions that in Babylon, in his days, the wealthy people would do kaparas with lambs. So they would use, sorry? How do you swing a lamb? Yeah, I guess you have someone pick it up. You can pick up a lamb. They would do it with lambs. 
um, they, would do, they would do with lambs. Um, clearly, it's a lot more expensive to use a lamb than to use a chicken. Rashi tells us that different custom from the Gaonic period, that people would plant beans in a pot a few weeks before Rosh Hashanah, and then the shoots would grow. It takes a couple weeks to grow. The shoots would grow, and then they would swing the plants over their head and then throw the plants into the sea. A little reminiscent of the Tashlich tradition as well, and perhaps this may have been kind of a mix of the Kaparas and Tashlich traditions. But by the Rishonim period, as it's known, the period that began with the beginning of European Jewish centers, about the year 1000 or so, um, when the great Jewish centers built in France, Germany, and Spain. Um, by that period, it was widespread, um, the custom to do kaparas with chickens, and it appears to have been extremely widespread. The custom has continued in almost all Jewish communities, Sephardic, Ashkenazic, throughout all the generations, and is still practiced in many communities today. Yes, Susan. I have a problem with it. Uh, first of all, <laughs> doesn't the Torah say that we cannot hurt animals? Well, I'm going to get to the reasons for kaparas in a moment. I'm going to get to the reasons for kaparas in a moment. Um, kaparas should not involve hurting animals. No, but it sounds like it would hurt if you got swung by your neck. Well, you don't swing it by, your, by its neck. No, they're alive. They're alive. They're alive, but they're being held. They're being held. You, you hold it gently and you pick it up. You don't have to swing it wildly. You swing it very gently. No, no, no. It's swung gently. Yeah, you could hold it, hold it, or hold it by its wings is the way you usually hold chickens. Um, yeah, uh, most people today, I'm going to soon talk about it. I'm going to soon talk about how we do it today. Most people today don't have much experience with chickens. Chickens are usually held either by their legs or by their wings. Um, the wings is usually the more gentle way to do it. You've got to know how, you, how to hold it properly. Um, but yeah, it's gently swung over your head. So we'll talk about that So there are a number of reasons given for this tradition. Why? Why do we do it? One reason is it is similar to sacrifices that were offered in the temple. Now to be clear, it is not a sacrifice. We are forbidden from offering sacrifices outside of the temple. But sacrifices were a central part of Judaism when the temple stood in Jerusalem. And though we have no sacrifices today, the reason why we don't have sacrifices today is simply because we don't have a temple. However, we regularly pray to God to restore these sacrifices. 
And in our prayers every day, we ask God to restore, rebuild the temple and restore sacrifices. So we believe in the ideal of sacrifice, even if we don't actually offer it today. Now, the purpose of a sacrifice is firstly to give something to God. It's a gift that you're giving to God, part of yourself from your own value, something that belongs to you. You're giving it to God. We can also accomplish that today by giving charity, which Kaparis essentially is. It's a form of charity. But in a sacrifice, we're not just giving something to God, but we slaughter the animal. And the goal of slaughtering the animal, we're told, is to show that we truly are deserving of death for our transgressions. And so by slaughtering the animal, we're doing to the animal what we sort of deserve. Now, we're not killing the animal because of our sin. We're killing the animal as a sacrifice. But it's a reminder by standing in front of the animal that's being killed and doing it in this ritualistic way, it's a reminder of our own lives and how we ourselves are mortal and how we ourselves are perhaps deserving of punishment. And therefore, it serves as a wake-up call to remind ourselves to improve our lives. Now, to be clear, we're not supposed to slaughter animals randomly for no reason. We should never hunt. We Jews don't believe in hunting. Uh, we believe it's ethically wrong um, to hunt. Well, first thing, we can't kill an animal by hunting because you have to slaughter it. Uh, but it's wrong to hunt for sport. We don't kill for sport, for fun. Um, but we can, we do believe that we can use animals for human consumption. And that's clear in the Torah. The Torah does allow us to eat meat. Um, so we can slaughter an animal for human consumption or for a mitzvah for it to fulfill God's commandments. And so, um, but standing and slaughtering an animal when we've done something wrong and standing and watching the slaughter serves as a reminder for ourselves, firstly, of our own mortality. And secondly, it serves as a reminder of perhaps what is deserved, what we ourselves would deserve for our own transgressions um, and giving us a little shake, reminding ourselves that we need to shape ourselves up due to Shuvah. So Kaparis is similar in that sense. When we do the ceremony, saying this chicken essentially is going to die, but I'm going to live. Now the chicken doesn't necessarily deserve to die, doesn't have to do anything, but it's okay to chill, kill chickens for human consumption. That's fine to kill chickens for human consumption. We eat chicken. Um, but we're saying we're going to watch the slaughter of this animal, firstly giving ourselves seeing a slaughter, which reminds ourselves of our own human mortality. We're going to die one day too. And also reminds ourselves that we perhaps would have been deserving of punishment similar to what happened to the chicken. And so therefore it serves to wake up and a reminder to do tshuva. So that's one reason for kaparis. It's simply by slaughtering the chicken and then eating it, which we believe is ethically acceptable. There's nothing wrong with slaughtering animals for human consumption or for purpose, um, for value. Um, we, and we, but we do it in front of ourselves, giving ourselves a little shake up, reminding ourselves of our own mortality and reminding ourselves of perhaps the transgressions that we may have done that may be deserving. We don't deserve life, but we're asking God, we're going to do Teshuvah, we're going to change our ways, please give us life. 
Another reason given for Kaparis is given by the Arizal, the great Kabbalist. And he says it's similar to the Azazel goat on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, there was a special service done by the high priest in the Holy Temple. And there were many different parts of this service. Among part of this way the service was done by the high priest in the temple was he would take a goat and he would designate this goat for Azazel. And it would be taken outside of Jerusalem to a cliff and this goat would be thrown down the cliff. Why would this happen? So the Arizal Kabbalah explains that the reason for this is is as a kapara, as a form of, a, of atonement. It is a ritual that God asked us to do. And just like we do many other rituals that God doesn't necessarily need, but he asks us to do it. So this too is a form of atonement. And it is representative, the goat is representative of God's gvura, God's strict judgment. And by destroying, by killing the goat, we are metaphorically asking God to end his strict, move away from strict judgment and instead move to a state of mercy. Where instead of giving us what we deserve, God should be merciful on us, even if we're not deserving of a good year, God should give us blessings regardless. So, kaparot is then a similar kind of thing, where, the, um, where it's a ritual where we kill the chicken, we're going to use it for food, but we kill the chicken in order to, as a ritual, to ask God to change from his state of judgment to a state of mercy where God should be merciful for us. Why do we use a chicken? So there are a number of Hebrew words for chicken. One of the Hebrew words for chicken is gever. Gever is also a word for man, for humans. So the same word for chicken can also be for humans. And um, there are a number of words in Hebrew for humans. There's Adam, there's Ish, there's Enosh. Gever is the human the way we've done wrong, the way we've sinned, the way we've fallen out of favor with God. And so when we say, when we, when we take the chicken for Kaparas to essentially symbolize ending our state of being a sinful individual, a person who has done bad, and moving over to a state of goodness, where we're only doing good, asking God to move from a state of judgment to a state of kindness. So it's a metaphoric thing that has what we could call spiritual implication, similar to many other rituals that we do, that God tells us to do various rituals that are symbolic of various spiritual things. So that's a second reason given for Kaparus by Kabbalists um, as a ritual that has spiritual symbolism of switching from God's state of judgment and our sinful state to our good slate and God's state of kindness and mercy. Have you ever heard of kapara being done on a sick bed where they take the chicken 
I have, I don't know if that's a Jewish custom. which is neither Sephardic or Ashkenazi. Those are the people that settled in the Balkans mm-hmm. uh, from the Babylonian captivity, and they do it. Okay, I don't know. So throughout history, there have been Jewish leaders that rejected the custom of Kaparut. Most notably in the 1300s, one of our great Jewish scholars in the 1300s was Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderes. He, he was um, known, known, best known by the acronym Rashba. Rashba, or Rabbi Shalom ben Aderet, was the chief rabbi of Barcelona in the 1300s. He writes that he stopped the custom of Kaparot in the city of Barcelona. The reason why he was against the custom of Kaparot is he felt that it was too pagan-like. The idea of taking an animal and slaughtering it as a sign of Forgiveness or a sign of atonement felt to pagan, felt similar to pagan custom, or Darkeha Amori as he describes it, and therefore he was against it. Um, similar, later scholar, famous scholar was, was Rav Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch of the Code of Jewish Law, who quotes some of, his, some of the earlier detractors, and he himself also writes that it is um, not a good custom and one should not do it. However, the vast majority of Jewish scholars throughout history have supported the custom. Ramosha Israelis, who wrote the, um, for, who was a rabbi of Krakow and a contemporary of Yosef Karo, and he wrote glosses on the Shulchan Aruch on the Code of Jewish Law that are always printed alongside the Code of Jewish Law. He writes that despite Rav Yosef Karo's um, hesitancy for kaparot, um, to, uh, over the custom of kaparot, it has been practiced. It's an ancient custom that by his time, they lived in the 1500s, by their days had been practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years by all Jewish communities. And therefore, it is a, and it's a meaningful custom that has great um, Kabbalistic meaning. Um, the Arizal writes about its great spiritual power in some detail. And so therefore, um, it should be practiced. And the truth is, though there have been a handful of detractors throughout Jewish history, most, almost all Jewish leaders throughout the last thousand plus years have supported the custom of kaparot, and just about every Jewish community throughout history has practiced kaparot. Later scholars had a different problem with kaparos, which was that even as Kaparos got spread out over the week before Yom Kippur, because the Shocha, the ritual slaughterer, simply didn't have enough time to slaughter all the Kaparot on the eve of Yom Kippur, it was still a problem of too many people wanting to do Kaparot, and the ritual slaughterer, the Shochet, simply did not being enough Shochim to slaughter all the chickens that people wanted to slaughter. And... Um, Rabbi Avram Danzig, who was a rabbi in Vilna in the um, 1700s, he wrote a famous book called Chaye Adam. He writes, in his days in Vilna, there were a lot of Jews. Vilna was a very large Jewish community, not enough shochtim and, uh, to do all the kaparot. As a result, the shochtim were under a lot of pressure with very, very long lines of people standing in front of their homes or wherever they did their ritual slaughter for the kaparot. And as a result, many of the chickens were not slaughtered properly. And so therefore he says, in order to avoid that problem, better than using chickens, you can do kaparot, just take money, 
the value of a chicken, swing it over your head, say, this is my exchange, and give the money to charity. Again, his concern, again, his concern was over the shochtim, the ritual slaughterers, being overly pressured, there being too many chickens to slaughter. Indeed, the Mishnah Brewer and other later halachic scholars brought the same concern with the same suggestion to use money instead to avoid the problem of there being simply too many chickens for the shochtim to be able to slaughter. Which leads us to the question of kaparas today. So historically, most people were rural or lived in towns, and there was no refrigeration. So throughout much of history, until modern times, every person had their own cow or goat in their front yard, in their backyard, that produced milk, but they had milk every day. You didn't buy milk. There was nowhere to buy milk. You had your own cow and goat that produced milk. My grandfather grew up in a town in Poland um, not that long ago, and um, they had a cow. Everybody in the town had a cow. There was a boy or a few kids whose job, teenagers whose jobs were they were shepherds. They would collect the cows every day and bring them outside to the town to graze in the fields and then bring them back in the evening and every morning they would milk their cow. That's what they did. In the same way, there was no place you could buy eggs. You didn't buy eggs anywhere. Um, everybody had chickens. The chickens either lived in their homes, running around inside the house, or in a chicken coop that they had outdoors for some. They would have kind of a coop with the chickens, but everyone had their own chickens, raised their own chickens, where they would get fresh eggs every morning. That's how they got fresh eggs. And so when people wanted to eat chicken, they would take one of their chickens that were hatched, that were one of their chickens, and they would bring it to the shochet, to the ritual slaughterer, who would have a set place. They would bring it to the slaughterer, the slaughterer would slaughter it for them, they would bring it home, they would kosher it themselves, meaning um, salt it and soak it and salt it to get the blood out, and then they would have fresh chicken to eat. Um, there were also breeders that would breed chickens. If you needed a large amount of chickens, you could get large numbers of chickens from the breeders or large numbers of eggs. But that's the way things were until about 100 years ago in most places. Everyone had their, produced their own, their own uh, eggs. Everyone produced their own chickens. Everyone produced their own milk. People were very comfortable around animals. People regularly slaughtered their own animals. Right? Non-Jews would just kill it themselves. They didn't need ritual slaughter. People were used to slaughter, used to seeing blood, used to seeing animals. Then in the last hundred years or so, we became urbanized. And we stopped raising cows and goats and chickens. We started living in crowded cities. We also, developed, um, we also invented this amazing thing called refrigeration, which allows our meat to be frozen and it can last for months or even years. It allows our eggs and milk to last for weeks. And so um, we started, people started buying milk and eggs and chicken and meat in the grocery, first in the butchers, then it became the grocery stores. And grocery stores provide them for us. And so in order to provide all the, um, in order to provide all the, eggs and all the chicken and all the meat and all the milk, 
we started what's called factory farming, industrialized farming. We started farming on scale. In other words, not that you had one or two cows, but people had thousands of cows, tens of thousands of cows, millions of chickens, right, that produced millions of eggs every day, right, where they slaughtered or they were slaughtering tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of chickens daily, right? We started what's called factory farming. Now, um, there's been some debate about how merciful factory farming is. Jewish values require us, and this is one of our seven Noahide laws that is universal, require us to be merciful to animals, not to be cruel to animals, not to cause animals unnecessary pain. Factory farming doesn't really take the, historically didn't take the animals' feelings into account and likely caused the animals a lot of pain, putting them in very cramped conditions, using all sorts of techniques to get the animals to grow faster, um, to produce better meats or better eggs or better milk. And uh, not all of them that were, the, were the, some, some of which may have been uncomfortable or painful. Over the years, awareness of the downsides to factory farming, the cruelty of factory farming has improved it dramatically, so it's gotten a lot better. Um, the ethics of factory farming is beyond our subject for today and um, beyond, um, beyond our class for today. But what has happened in recent years is that as Jews urbanized, we still wanted to keep the practice of kaparis alive, of the chickens. However, because people don't have their own chickens um, in their backyard, and there's no local breeder that you can go to that can easily sell you chickens, and we have to bring in chickens from the farms. So what they started doing already 100 years ago in a lot of the big Jewish cities is they would bring in trucks, similar trucks with cages, to, uh, to the way they would transport chickens from the producer to the slaughterhouses, the same kind of trucks, they bring them into the city, they use them for the kaparas, they then put them back, load them back on the trucks, and they ship them back to the slaughterhouse where they get slaughtered and then distributed, um, usually to Jewish schools, to yeshivas, or sometimes to soup kitchens and the like. So now this... Uh, now, people today have become very uncomfortable with kaparis for various reasons. So that's, sorry, so that's the way kaparis has been done until fairly recently, that they were brought to the cities and they were, um, and usually often on the streets in front of shoals or in the parking lots of shoals, and they would do the kaparis by the truck and then they would put the chickens back and ship it back to the slaughterhouse. People today are uncomfortable with kaparas for various reasons. Some people, and many people that are concerned with kaparas, simply dislike all use of animals for human consumption. They don't believe we should be eating meat, period. Judaism does not have a problem with eating meat. Much of the dislike for eating meat, the truth is, is a result of our distance from animal production. We have quite a distance from our, where our food comes from. And so we don't see the production of our food anymore the way we used to. When we lived on the farm, 
we always saw the production of our food. In fact, many of our early um, works that they make you read in school, in high school or even elementary school, are that were written in the 19th century, are about the kids that struggled, like Charlotte's Web, that struggled with the animals being used for slaughter and kind of the growing up and coming to the realization that the animals that you became friendly with are really just for food. And that was something that everyone grew up, was considered part of maturing and growing up. You learn that the animals are just for food production. Um, Today we don't learn that anymore because we don't live on farms anymore or around farming. So we don't get that experience. Not only that, the relationship that we have with animals today is we have animals as pets. And so, and what happens is these pets, we develop personal bonds with our dogs, with our cats, with the animals that we have as pets, giving the animals individual value. Now, in Judaism, while we believe that it's forbidden to show cruelty to animals, it's forbidden to cause animals pain, we don't believe that animals have individual value. Every human life is an entire world. We would do anything to save a human life. We don't believe the same about an animal life. We don't believe we should do anything to save an animal. We don't believe, well, we should not kill animals unnecessarily, just like we shouldn't destroy any of God's creations unnecessarily. We don't believe, and we should not kill animals for sport. We shouldn't get pleasure out of killing. But we don't believe that there is anything ethically wrong with killing animals or any particular animal, their lives are invaluable, similar to human life. That we don't believe there's anything wrong with killing animals. Um, Unfortunately, because of our distance from animal production today and because of the growth of personal pets, humans have, have this negative relationship with meat production, or a lot of humans are now uncomfortable with meat production, or to put it in other words, I think we could say that veganism is very much an urban movement that is a result of urbanization, distance from our animal production. In fact, even most people that eat meat are uncomfortable watching animal production. And Try not to think about where their chicken on their plate actually came from. Now, when chickens were brought on trucks into the city in a commercial way, so firstly, people are uncomfortable with, with kapara simply because it reminds us of where our chicken actually comes from, that it's coming from a real chicken, which I personally don't think is a bad thing, that we should see animal production. I think it's a good thing to bring children to see farming and to see where our food, both for plants and animals, see where it comes from, see how it develops. It's important for, children, for people to actually see that the chicken you, buy on, you get on your plate or the meat you get on your plate, where it's coming from, or the milk. So it's important to know where it's coming from. It's important to see it. I saw it as a child. Um, I was... I saw slaughtering as a child. Yeah. We went to slaughterhouse. In high school, and um, they, once brought, they brought animals to us. Yeah. It affected me to understand, to reach that maturity that the 18th century writers all wrote about where the children grow up and learn that animals are for food production. Um, It gives you a different relationship with your food. Um, Most people never get that experience anymore. 
So, so that's, I think, one reason people struggle with Kaparis. Now, Kaparis was brought on by the, historically in the last hundred years, we brought chickens on trucks into cities, and people were able to then see the rough side of factory farming. And factory farming was very rough, it's gotten a lot better. And so normally you don't see factory farming because all you see is the chicken in the supermarket. You don't see everything that it's going through to get there. So there's a lot of problems with factory farming that you don't see. Kaparis, when they loaded the chickens into these crowded crates on trucks and brought them through the cities, was an opportunity for people to actually see factory farming. It parked in front of the synagogue. And so it was an opportunity for people that were upset about factory farming to protest factory farming in general um, and a right to complain about factory farming practices. But for some reason, Kaparis got the blame instead of factory farming getting the blame. Now, thankfully, factory farming has dramatically improved, probably has a lot of room for further improvement, particularly in California, thanks to advocates. Um, and we should improve the conditions that animals are held in so that they should not be cruel, though we don't believe there's anything wrong with killing them for consumption. They should be, um, they sh they should be taken care of better. But because of that problem, most Kaparis has since moved back to the slaughterhouses so that we don't, to avoid the visual of bringing trucks with chickens into the communities, into the cities. So now most Kaparis are simply done in the slaughterhouses. People go down to the slaughterhouses where they offer, uh, where they do the Kaparis ceremony. Many Jews are still uncomfortable with the idea. They're uncomfortable. Now, some people, like I said, are uncomfortable with it because they don't believe that animals should be killed at all. Most people, though, do eat meat. And yet they're still uncomfortable with it. And the reason is because of urbanization and our urban experience, we simply have not seen slaughter. Most urban people, most people living in cities has never seen slaughter up close. And that's not necessarily a healthy thing. So for many of us, if we've never seen slaughter up close, um, it makes us very uncomfortable touching chickens, not just as a pet, but particularly watching the slaughter of a chicken. So firstly, I believe that if you're going to eat meat, and I don't think that we have a problem with eating meat, an uh, ethical problem with eating meat, if you're going to eat meat, it is a good idea to see slaughter. And it's a good idea to show children slaughter so that they get that experience, that Charlotte's Web experience or the experience that all those early kids' novels spoke about um, of a realization that your chicken comes from a chicken and your beef comes from a cow, right? And so it is important to reach that realization of how food is produced and that, these, and that animals historically have been domesticated and raised by humans for human consumption. It's important to see that and experience how it's done. We have a special mitzvah of shechita, of slaughter, and special mitzvah of processing animals of exactly how to do it. As a teenager, I got to see it. We had a teacher who was also a shochet who took us a number of times to slaughterhouse to see ritual slaughter. Um, we did kaparis as children. Later, um, later, when I was older, I actually studied ritual slaughter, shechita myself, um, and learned how to slaughter myself, um, which is, it's an experience, but it gives you a different 
view of your animals, right? Understanding animal production, what, what, how animals have been used by humans for thousands of years. For many, though, many urban people are still very uncomfortable with kaparas because we're urban, because we weren't raised on a farm, because we weren't raised with animal productions, we're still very uncomfortable with kaparas. Um, perhaps that's a good thing. After all, the goal of kaparas is to you to experience the death of the chicken and remind us of our own mortality and remind us that really we should die and, um, and that, that we don't necessarily deserve to live a good long life because of our actions and remind us to do teshuva. So perhaps the increased negative reaction or discomfort that we have today as products of an urban environment that we have with kaparas, if anything, that's perhaps a stronger kaparas or a stronger value to it. It gives you an even stronger reason to do teshuva. There are those who still don't want to do it. You can do it with money. That's another, definitely another option. Um, originally, it was the, the money idea was developed to help the shochtim who were overwhelmed, but it definitely can be done if you're uncomfortable. But if you can bring yourself to do it, um, it's, probably, it's definitely a good thing to do. It's an it's a old Jewish tradition and custom. But regardless of whether you're going to do kaparis yourself to experience the kaparis and seeing the chicken get killed, um, or not do kaparis with the chicken, use money. Regardless, it's important as Jews that we stand up for Jewish traditions and Jewish customs, whether people like them or whether people don't. In Proverbs, it tells us, The ways of Torah are pleasant. It's pleasant to be, a, to be a Jew and follow Torah. It's a better way of life. Keeping Shabbos, keeping kosher, keeping our various rules. It's a better way of life, living as a Jew following God's commandments. Now, while most of Judaism is pleasant and nice, there are parts of Judaism that are uncomfortable for various reasons. Some, like Kaparas, were designed to make us feel uncomfortable to help encourage us to do teshuva, to return, to return to God. Some are uncomfortable for various other reasons. We spoke about this also when we spoke about sending away the mother bird is another mitzvah that could be uncomfortable. And certain mitzvahs have a discomfort to them. But ultimately, as Jews, Judaism is something that we must stand up for. It's our traditions. It's our teachings. It's our background. And so even a tradition that perhaps makes us uncomfortable is still our tradition. It's still part of our Jewish tradition, part of our Jewish custom, what our grandparents did. And so it's important that whether a Jew feels, uh, wants to do the actual kaparis and experience the discomfort that comes with kaparis, or whether they cannot bring themselves to actually do it because they're, in general, don't like eating meat or because they just don't want to make the connection between the chicken and the chicken, uh, whatever it is, uh, it's still important to, at least within our own minds and to others, recognize that this is a Jewish custom and recognize that this is our traditions, 
and our custom. And even if it makes us uncomfortable, this is part of our Jewish custom. There are many other commandments that may make people uncomfortable. I know some people are uncomfortable with circumcision, um, and that's a discussion for itself. Uh, but it's one of our most important commandments. And there are similarly many, many others. Some people are uncomfortable with fasting on Yom Kippur. It's a difficult one. It's not an easy one, but it may, may be healthy. But there are many different various mitzvahs that make people uncomfortable in various ways of various reasons. But regardless, if they're part of our Jewish tradition, this is our history. And there's no question that our ancestors, our grandparents, every one of us, have been practicing kaparas for thousands, well over a thousand years for certain. And so whether we're able to bring ourselves to actually do kaparas with the chicken or just use the money, whichever one it is, it's important to recognize that this is our custom. It is our tradition and it's an important part of Judaism. So I um, wish you all a... Gemar Chatimot Nova, you should be sealed for a good year. Um, and uh, we hope to see you all over Yom Kippur, together with many friends who you're going to bring along. And uh, once again,